Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We would not have a 40-hour work week had it not been for labor unions. And I think it's important for your listeners to recognize that the movement for an eight-hour day and a 40-hour work week started in Chicago. Chicago is referred to in a variety of ways as a union town. With baristas walking out, hotel workers on the picket lines, and Hollywood essentially at a standstill, there's been a lot of discussion recently in pop culture about unionizations. This brings up the question, why do people strike? Sorry your shows aren't being made. These people are fighting for their livelihood. I'm Ariel Ravenet, and this week, we're examining what it means to be in a union, along with patterns throughout history where major events have inspired labor revolutions. Let's get looped in, Chicago. When I look out here, I see people who have decided to join SAG-AFTRA. And when I look out here, I see people who have decided to make their passion their purpose. I see the Writers Guild of America and the Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA, are currently on the picket lines for a myriad of reasons. One of the biggest is because streaming services are the popular way to consume media. So writers and actors aren't getting royalties the same way they do with regular broadcasting. On standard television, when an episode of something is rerun, actors and writers on that show receive residual payments. And if a show goes into syndication, that program may air multiple times a day in several different markets, leading to more pay. But for streaming, the technology has put the cart before the horse. Actors and writers are not being paid the same way if you watch and rewatch their show on a streaming platform versus a syndicated program. Essentially, they're striking for better pay, job security, and respect. What makes this current strike a landmark event is that both writers and actors have not struck together for over 60 years. But Hollywood hasn't been the only ones protesting. Loretto is paying for overtime and working member, many of our members six or seven days a week with 12-hour shifts. Now, how does that make sense? Or how is it even sustainable? Our members are getting injured. They have nearly no time off, and they are exhausted. We don't want to strike, but management refuses to bargain with us in good faith yeah. and offer us livable wages. So Loretto, do the right thing. Pay your staff. Staff the hospital safely so that we can all continue to work here and to love working at Loretto Hospital. Across the country, Starbucks baristas and hotel staff at certain national chains have organized walkouts and strikes. Locally, Loretto Hospital recently saw 200 healthcare workers, including emergency room techs, walk off the job, and UPS narrowly avoided a nationwide strike that would have halted deliveries. 
It's been decades since America has seen strikes and unionization of this scale. So we wanted to know, why now? We spoke with Dr. Steve Masick, Department Chair of Media Communication Studies at North Central College, and Kim Kelly, journalist and author of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. They both had similar answers. Ever since the pandemic, when healthcare workers, food and grocery workers, and delivery personnel, truck drivers, and other quote-unquote essential workers were sort of thrust onto the front line, were endangered constantly by not having enough personal protective equipment to, to, to work safely. Many of them were working jobs that did not have health insurance, and they saw the disparity between their bosses who were working remotely and the fact that they were kind of out on the front lines earning a lot less and, and, and without the benefit of health insurance, um, they started to get upset. So many people earlier in the pandemic and still even now, at first they were told they were essential. They got a little raise. They got a little hazard pay. You know, if you lived in New York, people beat pots and pans at you for a while. They were appreciated. And then that eventually went away. It went back to normal, by which I mean it went back to being awful. Wages for the average worker only rose in some industries for a short time due to hazard pay, with health insurance not an option. Respect for those working the morning rush behind the counter, cutting meat in factories and other service industries, seemed to dwindle back to labels of unskilled labor. But for some that were on the front lines, Kim says they could not go back to how it was. Those workers who experienced that, who really got an up-close and personal view of how important their work is, and by extension how important their lives were, I think that really created a shift in the way people saw what they were doing with their time and what they were willing to accept. We had that moment of what was dubbed the Great Resignation, and the government actually gave us a little bit of money for a minute. I'm going to take this opportunity to find something that's better. These once essential workers, Steve says, believe that until the public and their bosses realize how important their labor is, they need to withhold it. In some ways, these strikes and this labor organizing is a reaction against this inordinate power that has been consolidated in the hands of a very few corporations um, and their, their owners and shareholders. Um, it's a way of, of workers fighting back. But in the process, I think they'll make life uncomfortable for, say, ordinary consumers or ordinary members of the public, necessarily. Because the one power that labor has is the power to withhold its labor, to withhold their work, and to shut down the economy, to compel employers um, to come to the bargaining table and to give them a fair deal. That's the only power they really have at this point, is to, to engage in a strike. And it would be something close to like a, wouldn't be like a general strike, but it would be a massive strike wave if, you know, all the actors, the writers, there's some hotel workers who are on strike throughout Los Angeles. If UPS went on strike on top of that, that would be close to a million or at least like, you know, 750,000 workers on strike all at the same time. And there have been other really big strike waves in American history, but the most recent one was like in the 70s. So does history repeat itself in this regard? Is there a pattern that can be seen throughout history between major global events followed by the rise of union striking? After events like World War I and World War II, there was an uptick in labor revolutions and the laws for the worker being passed. While COVID wasn't a war in the traditional sense, the daily fear and danger was something unprecedented for a lot of people. While some got to work from home, 
being able to leave the house to get groceries or a coffee, those stocking the shelves and brewing that cup didn't get that luxury. So with the world at a standstill, they had time to reflect and get angry. I don't think we would have seen as much of a, a rise in interest in unions and in workers' rights and labor power if so many workers hadn't gone through that horrific experience earlier in the pandemic. I think it has had a massive impact on the way people see the value of their time and their work and their place in the world. You know, people aren't necessarily willing to put up with nonsense anymore. People have really gotten a very clear view of how important their labor is, how nothing works without them. And I think that that is kind of underpinning the moment we're in right now. A time we can look back to with this scale of labor uprising is the 70s. America was at the tail end of the Vietnam War. Movements during this time were a continuation of the 60s. Free love, civil rights for groups like Asian Americans and LGBTQ folks, second wave feminism and rampant protests against the war. On the surface, these fights may seem like individual issues, but Kim says the intersection of identity is more important than some know when it comes to the labor movement. Whenever we're talking about a specific movement for liberation, whether it's the Black Power movement or the Civil Rights movement, the queer and trans liberation movement, women's rights, all of these different movements, I think there is this tendency to look at them almost in a bubble, right? Like whatever's happening there is what happened within that scene and that's what was going on and they weren't connected to anything else. And that's absolutely not the case. One of the reasons that it was interesting for me to jump in uh, this labor history through that lens was to see how deep those intersections run. Like, for example, I included a whole chapter on how figures in the civil rights movement were also involved in labor. There was such a beautiful overlap in this one specific example I always love to bring up during the Section 504 protests in the 70s when disabled activists occupied a number of federal buildings across the country, most notably in San Francisco. They were able to keep that occupation in San Francisco going for almost a month because they had help from the Mashness Union who provided them resources and transportation. They had help from the Black Panthers who fed them because a couple of the disabled activists were also Black Panthers. They had help from local churches. There was so much interconnectivity happening there and they were able to succeed and to ultimately make history because they embraced and were able to utilize all of their different intersecting communities. Whenever you think of somebody on a picket line or at a protest, they also probably have to go to work on Monday or go to work after they get bailed out of jail. And the fact that the condition of being a worker is one of the few nearly universal experiences that we all share, almost everyone has had a job or has a job now or will have a job eventually. That is, I think, really valuable when it comes to understanding the way people's other aspects of their identities intersect in the ways that we can use them to build a stronger movement and to win gains and win victories. And so with that said, why do you think some groups and leaders have been not only left out of history books, but also perhaps like this intersection of people fighting together, people joining, you know, other causes? Why do you think that has been kind of left out and not really spoken about as much? It's too powerful. <laughs> and uh, something, especially throughout labor history, and when it comes to the more mainstream, readily available histories that are easier to access for people that aren't within academia, I think there is kind of this almost mass erasure of people, leaders, 
and movements within the broader labor movement that have been a little too radical, who've had politics that were a little too red, a little too inconvenient. I mean, a lot of the folks are not only socialists, but they're communists and anarchists. And uh, that's not necessarily a political legacy that everyone is comfortable with acknowledging, which like, okay, you do you, but also it's just a bare fact that communists and anarchists have been a huge part of the labor movement since the jump. The working class does not look the way that it's been portrayed to us by major media outlets and, you know, grifting politicians. Uh, it's always been much, much more colorful, much more multi-gendered, much more queer, much more radical than, than we've been led to believe. And I think part of that is just the fact that if more people knew that and saw themselves in the movement and saw themselves in these past struggles and in these leaders, that it would just make us a whole lot more dangerous to the status quo, to the powers that be, whether we're talking about corporations or politicians or even some more you know, entrenched labor leadership. With this pattern of events leading to strikes and unionization, I wondered, are people that are striking today also using tactics from the past? I think there are a lot of different examples you could draw from. I don't know if the folks who are out on these picket lines now, whether it's for Starbucks or for Carl's Jr., I don't know if folks are necessarily thinking back to a specific moment, but I think, I don't want to just say vibes, but I think that there is kind of this sense of the, this kind of knowledge and feeling that people have like, okay, like this, is, I'm part of something, something that happened before is informing the way I, I act now and the way I approach this issue, the situation I'm in now. An idea that is used in a lot of labor movements is the notion that workers are stronger together. This is something that Kim says she has seen throughout history to today. You know, one of the examples in my book I like to think back on and connect to what's happening now is um, back in the 1940s, the great sugar strike when field workers at the, the massive sugarcane fields that provided I mean, the bulk of Hawaii's economy at that point in time, they were owned by white mainlanders who lived outside the islands or lived in fancy houses on the islands and they were worked by a mix of uh immigrant workers from asia from puerto rico from elsewhere from elsewhere in europe as well as native hawaiians and it was a big kind of melange of different uh races and ethnicities and languages and for a long time the bosses tried to keep them separated tried to make sure they weren't organizing, they weren't talking to each other, they weren't getting any ideas. And it got to a point in uh, the 1940s when their union, they were like, okay, we're coming up another strike. We need to make sure that the bosses aren't able to pull us apart and to separate us. Because in the past, they had been able to pit different groups of people against one another. And so the union was like, okay, we can't let that happen this time. They made sure there were translators at every meeting. They built strike kitchens where different groups of workers cooked for one another, got to know one another. And by the time it came time to strike, those workers all walked out en masse and they shut it down and they won huge gains in their contracts because they'd stuck together and they'd gotten across those artificial divisions. And I really thought about that when the news of the Staten Island uh, Amazon labor union election win broke, I guess, a couple of years ago now, because they'd employed some of those same tactics, you know, making sure that people who spoke different languages that were 
heard and respected. They shared food. They met people where they were and emphasized that it was them against the boss. And just seeing that spirit kind of transferred from the 1940s and before that into the kind of multi-everything organizing we're seeing now. With all this talk of strikes and unions, how did this become an option for workers in America? When we come back from the break, we'll take a look at the legality of striking and what these events of yesterday have given the modern worker today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. One thing I kept hearing in research for this story was the word solidarity. And not just from members of SAG-AFTRA supporting each other, but even from those who aren't in a union yet. At a recent SAG-AFTRA protest at Millennium Park, I spoke with Nyla Smith, a student in film scoring at Columbia College, and she was picketing not just for those in the industry, but for her future self, as she seeks a career that would potentially put her shoulder to shoulder with actors and writers. As a film composer, we don't have a union right now, but, you know, we all share the industry, and so I think solidarity is important. I'm still in school, but anticipating, you know, living in L.A. one day and working alongside um, all of these great people, so just happy to be out here. To Nyla, joining a union means something beyond negotiating contracts. It means having another family of sorts. So to understand the legality of striking and how someone like Nyla's dream could become a reality, we need to understand some history first. In 1935, the National Labor Relations Act, or the NLRA, was passed. This was a recognition by the government that employees had the right to collectively bargain, with or without a union, for better workplace conditions. This act is still used today. That same year, the Wagner Act was passed, which established the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, the federal agency that oversees unions and their process. But how does a workplace establish a union? Here's Steve to explain. So there's a couple of ways that workers can go about unionizing. And when you unionize, you're selecting a group to serve as a collective bargaining agent. You're giving them the right to negotiate with the employer on your behalf a contract that then the, the employees will sign. So there's two ways you can go about getting a union at a workplace. One, you can collect signatures from employees at the workplace on what are called certification cards. And if you collect a certain percentage of those, you can then file with the National Labor Relations Board for a union election. If you do that, I think it's got to be a majority of the workers at the, at the workplace say they want to hold an election for a collective bargaining agent. Um, if you f submit enough certification cards uh, to the, the NLRB, 
the NLRB will then conduct an election at your workplace, will sort of determine who's eligible to vote in that election, which workers count as, uh, you know, as part of the co potential collective bargaining unit. And it, one of the other things that's supposed to happen is as soon as an election has been filed for, the employer cannot change any of the conditions of, of the work, in, including pay. So they can't just all of a sudden raise workers' pay in an effort to get them not to vote for the union or give them health, a better health insurance plan after the election's been filed for to sort of buy, buy their vote in the union election. They, they, they're not allowed to change any of the conditions, um, any of the terms of employment. That's, filing for election is what, you know, I think the standard way most, most workplaces get unionized is through an NLRB-run election, certification election. There is another way, which is to what's called striking for recognition. Um, this happens when a group of workers decide they're not going to risk going through this whole election process, which is very protracted, it's expensive, you don't know what's going to happen. Instead, they go out on strike demanding that the employer sit down with them and negotiate a contract with them to end the strike. That doesn't happen as much anymore. So what does the board do when an employer violates the National Labor Relations Act? To read directly from the NLRB website, under its statute, the NLRB cannot assess penalties. The agency may seek make-whole remedies, such as reinstatement and back pay for discharged workers, and informational remedies, such as the posting of a notice by the employer promising not to violate the law. So, if employees plan a walkout or strike due to workplace conditions, they are protected by the NLRA to not get fired and to receive back pay for the time spent in the bargaining process. We've actually seen this in recent years with Starbucks. When stores started to unionize a couple years ago, some would get shut down by the company and or find employees leading the movement fired. The company was brought to court for their behavior in 2021 to 2022. The case consolidated 35 unfair labor practices over 21 stores. This March, NLRB Administrative Law Judge Michael Rosas ruled the behavior to be egregious misconduct and illegal. So we've heard a lot about the history of the labor movement in America and why people are striking today. But what effect did these moments in history have on the workplace we see today? key role in pushing for social security and unemployment insurance. We would still probably have child labor in this country if it weren't for labor unions. Labor unions played a big role in um, putting in place laws against uh, you know, sexual harassment and, and racial discrimination. People forget that Walter Ruther and the steel workers were big funders of the civil rights movement and big supporters. Not all labor unions were in, you know, supportive of the civil rights movement. So there's a lot <laughs> that, <laughs> that I think you can trace, <laughs> a lot that we take for granted. We all take for granted that your, work, your employer shouldn't be able to like, force you to work 80 hours a week without paying you extra, right? Um, we all take it for granted that like, 10 and 11 year olds can't go, uh, be forced to go work in factories. Those reforms were won by labor unions or their allies They're in, in, in the political realm. I think also workplace safety regulations of various kinds. Um, 
they're not exclusively the creation of labor unions, but they wouldn't, we wouldn't have them had it not been for labor unions drawing attention to especially dangerous working conditions in, in manufacturing and industry and raising the public's awareness. The big thing is, you know, Social Security, unemployment, 40-hour work week. If you like, your, if you like the weekend, <laughs> if you appreciate having a weekend, you can thank organized labor for that. With the Starbucks roastery in Chicago filing to unionize, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA still in negotiations, and the Teamsters recently settling on a contract for UPS workers, what happens when a union negotiates and approves a contract that leaves some workers unhappy? No one's ever 100% happy, but striking that balance in the favor of the workers, and ideally the the most vulnerable and marginalized workers, that's the key to good union leadership, I think. People being annoyed about the contracts, I think, has fueled a lot of the reform movements we've seen in unions. Like in my union, we uh, there's a lot of different people in our union council with different experiences, and uh, some of them are more set in their ways than others, and that wasn't serving a part of our membership for a good while. So some of us who are younger and more progressive and a little more militant ran for council seats and we got in and we've made a lot of changes. Unions are complicated. They're not like a panacea to fix everything. They're still made up of people, but people have the capacity to change, especially when they organize among their coworkers and their fellow union members and say, you know what? These guys are all right, but I think we could do a better job. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looped in Chicago. This episode was hosted by me, Ariel Ravenet. Produced and edited by myself, Jim Hinky, and Lizzie Baumgartner. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and follow us on the Odyssey app, wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, follow us on social media at WBBM Podcasts. We'll get you looped in again back here next week. See you then. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.